Hello everybody, welcome back to Politics on Trial. Today we will be discussing the Syrian war. Now let's get right into it. In March of 2011, Syria's government, led by President Bashar al-Assad, faced an unprecedented challenge to its authority when pro-democracy protests erupted throughout the country. Protesters demanded an end to the authoritarian practices of the Assad regime in place since Assad's father, Hafiz al-Assad, became president in 1971. The Syrian government used violence to suppress demonstration, making extensive use of police, military, and paramilitary forces. Opposition militias began to form in 2011, and by 2012, the conflict had expanded into a full-fledged civil war. So in January of uh, 2011, um, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was asked in an interview with the Wall Street Journal if he expected the wave of popular protest that was at that time sweeping through the Arab world, um, which had already unseated some um, authoritarian rulers in like Tunisia and Egypt, if he expected that that wave of protest was going to reach Syria. Um, Assad acknowledged that there had been economic hardships for many Syrians, and that progress towards political reform had been slow and halting, but he was confident that Syria would, you know, be spared because his administration's stance of resistance to the United States and Israel aligned with the beliefs of the Syrian people, whereas the leaders who had already fallen had carried out pro-Western policy in defiance of their people's feelings. So basically he was saying that, you know, because I'm doing what my people want to see, I don't think that's going to happen to me, you know? The onset of anti-regime protests coming just a few weeks after the interview made it clear that Assad's situation had been just a bit more precarious than he was willing to admit. In reality, a variety of long-standing political and economic problems were pushing the country toward instability. When Assad succeeded his father in the year 2000, he came to the presidency with a reputation as a modernizer and a reformer. The hopes that were raised by Assad's presidency went largely unfulfilled. In politics, a brief turn toward greater participation was quickly reversed, and Assad revived the authoritarian tactics of his late father's administration. And that's including censorship, surveillance, and brutal violence against suspected opponents of the regime. Assad also oversaw significant liberalization of Syria's state-dominated economy. But those changes mostly served to enrich a network of crony capitalists with ties to the regime. On the eve of the uprising, then, Syrian society remained highly repressive, with increasing conspicuous inequalities in wealth and privilege. Environmental crises also played a role in Syria's uprising, believe it or not. Um, Between 2006 and 2010, Syria was experiencing the worst drought in the country's modern history. Hundreds of thousands of farming families were reduced to poverty, causing, you know, a mass migration of rural people into urban towns, as at that time they were called shanty towns. Um, it was in this impoverished, drought-stricken rural province of Darat in southern Syria that the first major protest occurred. This was in March 2011. A group of children were arrested and tortured by the authorities for writing anti-regime graffiti. So because they had spoken out against the unfair conditions that they were being subjected to, mainly because of the regime, they were arrested and tortured. Now, obviously, because of this, um, local people were incensed. 
or angered, and they took to the streets to demonstrate for political and economic reforms. Security forces responded quite harshly, conducting mass arrests and sometimes firing on demonstrators. The violence of the regime's response added visibility and momentum to the protesters' cause, and within weeks, similar nonviolent protests had begun to appear in cities around the country. Videos of security forces that were beating and firing at protesters, captured by witnesses on mobile phones, were circulating around the country, and they were smuggled to foreign media outlets outside of the country. So, in a way, the greatest gift to the protesters was actually their maltreatment by the government and police force because it showed, it allowed them to show the rest of the world and the rest of the Syrians exactly how far-reaching this problem was. From early on, the uprising in the regime's response had a sectarian dimension. Many of the protesters belonged to the country's Sunni majority, while the ruling Assad family were members of the country's Alawite minority. Alawites also dominated the security forces and the irregular militias that carried out some of the worst violence against protesters and suspected opponents of the regime. Sectarian divisions were initially not as rigid as is sometimes supposed. Though the political and economic elite would ties the regime included members of all of Syria's confessional groups, not just Alawites. While many middle and working class Alawites did not particularly benefit from belonging to the same community as the Assad family and may have even shared some of the protesters' socioeconomic grievances. Now, as the conflict progressed, um, sectarian divisions hardened. So this is, you know, it has to do with religion, obviously. In his public statements, Assad uh, sought to portray the opposition as Sunni Islamic um, extremists in the mold of al-Qaeda, um, and as participants in foreign conspiracies about Syria. So he was trying to paint with a broad brush and say that, you know, his opposition was, you know, like al-Qaeda. Um, the regime also produced propaganda um, stoking minorities' fears that the predominantly Sunni opposition would carry out violent repri uh, reprisals against non-Sunni communities. So basically he was saying, if you're not Sunni, you're not safe, you know, you they might reach out and strike at you at any moment. So because of that, it was it was he started to consolidate a little bit more of his power. As the protests increased in both strength and size, the regime responded with heavier force. In some cases, this meant encircling cities or neighborhoods that had become hubs of protests, such as banias or homes, with tanks, artillery, attack helicopters, and even cutting off utilities and communications. In response, some groups of protesters began to take up arms against the security forces. By the summer of 2011, Syria's regional neighbors and the global powers had both begun to split into pro- and anti-Assad camps. The United States and the European Union were increasingly critical of Assad as his crackdown continued. And then U.S. President Barack Obama and several European heads of state called for him to step down in August of 2011. Meanwhile, um, some of Syria's long-standing allies, uh, like Iran and Russia, continued their support for Syria, um, for the Syrian government, rather. 
uh, an early indicator of the international divisions and rivalries that would, you know, prolong the conflict or, you know, extended, came in October of 2011 when Russia and China cast the first of several vetoes blocking a UN Security Council resolution that would have condemned Assad's crackdown. Although it is impossible to pinpoint when the uprising turned, um, you know, from predominantly peaceful protests um, into militarized rebellions, armed clashes did become increasingly common. And by September of 2011, organized rebel militias were regularly engaging in combat with the government troops in cities around Syria. So it's it's almost like there was some sort of some sort of progression, you know, it's, that's why you can't pinpoint it, but there was some sort, some sort of progression where the peaceful protests turned into protests where people were, you know, violently expressing their hate for the, you know, regime, Assad's regime. Late 2011 and early 2012 saw a series of ill-fated efforts by international organizations to bring the conflict to an end. In early November 2011, Syrian officials agreed to an Arab League initiative calling for the Syrian government to stop violence against protesters, remove tanks and armored vehicles from cities, and release political prisoners. In December of 2011, the Syrian government agreed to permit a delegation of monitors from the Arab League to visit Syria to observe the implementation of the plan. The observer mission quickly lost credibility with the opposition as it became clear that not enough monitors and equipment had been sent and that the Syrian government had presented the monitors with orchestrated scenes and restricted their movements. Amid concerns for the monitor safety, the Arab League ended the mission on January 28th. A second agreement, this time brokered by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan and sponsored by the UN and the Arab League, produced a short partial ceasefire in April 2012, but violence soon resumed and reached higher levels than before, and the UN team of monitors, just like the Arab League, had to withdraw for security reasons. So having had little success in creating, you know, peace between the combatants, um, between the combatants themselves, the UN and the Arab League sought to enlist the international powers in support of a political settlement to the conflict. Um, In June 2012, an international conference organized by the UN produced the Geneva Communique, uh, which provided a roadmap for negotiations to establish sort of a transitional governing body for Syria. Um, The United States and Russia, of course, were unable to agree on whether Assad should be included in um, in a future Syrian government. And so because of that, um, this was left unspecified. So just the fact that it was left unspecified is a very serious thing. You know, they haven't banned Assad um, from taking control in government again, and they haven't said that he will, you know. So there's, there's no, we don't really know what will happen at this point. By early 2012, it was becoming clear that the Syrian National Council, otherwise known as SNC, an opposition umbrella group formed in Istanbul in August 2011 was too narrow and too weakened by infighting to effectively represent the opposition. 
After months of continuous diplomacy in November, Syrian opposition leaders announced the formation of a new coalition called the National Coalition for Syrian Revolutionary and Opposition Forces. Over the next month, the coalition received recognition from dozens of countries as the legitimate representative of the Syrian people. The divisions and the rivalries that had plagued the Syrian National Council were nevertheless still present in the new organization. There were new calls for international military action in Syria after suspected chemical weapon attacks were used in the suburbs of Damascus and they killed hundreds, hundreds on August, 23rd, uh, August 21st of 2013. The Syrian opposition accused pro-Assad forces of having carried out the attacks. Syrian officials denied having used any chemical weapons and asserted that if such weapons had been used, it was the rebel forces that were to blame. Now, while UN weapons inspectors collected evidence at the sites of the you know, alleged chemi- uh, chemical attacks, U.S., British and French leaders denounced the use of chemical weapons and made it known that they were considering retaliatory um, retaliatory strikes against the Assad regime. Now, Russia, China, and Iran spoke out against military action, and Assad vowed to fight what he described as, you know, Western aggression. In 2013, Islamist militias began to take center stage as the non-Islamist factions faltered from exhaustion and infighting. The Nusra Front and Al-Qaeda affiliate operating in Syria partnered with a variety of other opposition groups and was generally considered to be one of the most effective fighting forces. But it was soon overshadowed by a new group. In April 2013, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, declared that he would combine his forces in Iraq and Syria to form ISIS, otherwise known as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. The sudden advances in Iraq by ISIS, which were accompanied by a steady stream of violent and provocative propaganda, added urgency to the international community's calls for action. By 2016, ISIS, which only a few years earlier had appeared to be nearly unstoppable in northern and eastern Syria, was beginning to collapse. And that's due to the strain from simultaneous confrontations with three rival coalitions, Kurdish forces and their American allies, pro-Assad, Syrian forces supported by Iran and Russia, and a Turkish-backed coalition of rebel groups. Um, Israel targeted the Iranian military in Syria in 2018. Dozens of Iranian military sites were targeted, and Israel claimed to have destroyed nearly all of Iran's military infrastructure in Syria. In June 2018, however, having solidified their hold on the areas around Damascus and Homs, the Syrian government began a campaign to recapture rebel-held territories in the southwest province of Dara, later expanding into the Al-Qunatra province. As the success of the government operation became clear, a deal was brokered with the help of Russia that allowed rebels safe passage to the rebel-held province of Idlib in the north in exchange for their surrender in the southwest of the country. Russia and Turkey attempted to de-escalate the situation by agreeing to and implementing a buffer zone between rebel and government forces. So a buffer zone, basically, as is kind of like a no-man's land, you know, um... It required all heavy weaponry and any fighters to retreat from, you know, an area about 
I, I think it was about like nine to 12 or, uh, yeah, nine to 12 miles wide. The Syrian government and mainstream rebel groups, such as the Free Syrian Army, quickly embraced the buffer zone agreement. Now, groups that were sympathetic to Al-Qaeda, such as the HTS, remained wild cards, though they appeared to signal that they would comply with it. So basically, they were saying, sure, we'll, maybe, you know, maybe we'll, we'll listen to you and not bring, you know, heavy weaponry into this place. What is happening right now? The United States on Thursday carried out airstrikes in eastern Syria against buildings belonging to what the Pentagon said were Iran-backed militias responsible for recent attacks against American and allied personnel in Iraq. President Biden authorized the attacks in response to the rocketing in Iraq and to continuing threats to American and coalition personnel there. A rocket attack on February 15th on the airport in Erbil in northern Iraq killed a Filipino contractor with the American-led military coalition and wounded six others, including a Louisiana National Guard soldier and four American contractors. American officials said the strikes were a relatively small, carefully calibrated military response. Seven 500-pound bombs dropped on a small cluster of buildings at an unofficial crossing at the Syria-Iraq border used to smuggle across weapons and fighters. The strikes were just over the border in Syria, and to avoid diplomatic blowback um, from the Iraqi government, they specifically pinpointed the border and tried to, you know, just get it over it. So the Pentagon offered up larger groups of targets, but Biden approved a less aggressive option. The American airstrikes on Thursday um, specifically destroyed multiple facilities located at a border control used by a number of um, Iranian-backed militia troops. Um, This proportionate military response was conducted together with diplomatic measures, including consultation with coalition partners. Um, The operation apparently sent an unambiguous message that President Biden will protect and, you know, act to protect and and serve any American and coalition personnel. John F. Kirby, the press secretary for the Pentagon, stated that the American retaliation was meant to punish the perpetrators of the rocket attack, but not to escalate hostilities with Iran with which the Biden administration has sought to renew talks on a nuclear deal that former President Donald J. Trump had shelved. Now, the decision to strike in Syria instead of Iraq was likely to avoid causing issues for the Iraqi government, who is a key partner in the continuing efforts against ISIS. It was smart to strike in Syria and avoid the blowback in Iraq. At least some people think so. Biden had discussed the rocket attacks in a phone call on Tuesday with the um, prime minister of Iraq. A White House statement afterward said the two agreed that those responsible for such attacks must be held fully to account. Now, administration officials have said since the Erbil attack that the United States would respond to the strike at a time and place of its choosing. Even so, the deliberateness of the new administration's approach has raised questions both in Washington and in Baghdad, about where Biden's red lines are, you know, where he is willing to stop when it comes to responding to attacks from, you know, Iranian-backed militias that target Americans in Iraq. It's a very tricky situation, and as with many military situations, it's very delicate. The slightest thing could push it over the edge.
Thank you.